Welcome to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I know you're expecting Mike Petriello, but your normal host, Mike Petriello, is not here today. But this is me, his typical co-host, Matt Myers, national editor for MLB.com. And joining me today as our special guest host and frequent guest is uh, Will Leach, a national columnist for MLB.com. Will, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm very well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'm sorry to disappoint the listeners. This is kind of like, this. I'm dating myself in this, but this is back when you would like watch Johnny Carson, but you realize he's not hosting and the host is like Gallagher or something. Like I'm just the guy smashing watermelons. Yeah, I'm, I'm Gallagher. I'm just like, I've got crazy hair. I look out in the first couple front rows. You're going to need a tarp because I'm going to be smashing some fruit. <laughs> well, Mike is on vacation, so we're going to try and fill his Fill his big shoes. And today we're going to talk about the unofficial MLB.com all-star ballot. We're going to talk about what we want to see at this year's trade deadline. We're going to talk about why seven-inning doubleheaders are good. Then we're going to discover some guys, including the son of a major leaguer you probably didn't notice. It's going to be kind of like remembering a guy while also discovering a guy. It's going to be you know, sort of like the, um, the, the uh, what's the word, the singularity of remembering and discovering some guys. And then finally, we're going to throw a couple of our purpose pitches also known as our closing rants. But first, in the segment that we like to call the opener, we're going to talk about Lucas Giolito's no-hitter last last night, as well as this year's upstart teams, including Giolito's White Sox, and just how crazy the first round of this year's playoffs could be. Will, did you watch Lucas Giolito's no hitter last night? Yeah, I got the alert uh, in the in the seventh and uh, and switched over. And again, it, there it is. This is the first no hitter in a fanless world, and, and, the, and it really was kind of remarkable to watch because it really all the anticipation was all coming from outside. One of the things I've actually found, generally speaking, watching all of these games with no fans is I'm all the context you bring from it yourself, right? Like there's ordinarily you can hear the excitement growing in the stadium. And it's weird because ordinarily in a no hitter, everybody leaves the pitcher alone and everyone is real quiet. It was unusually quiet. uh, Kind of watching him do that. But uh, it's weird. I wonder if that's helpful. Like if you're in a situation where there's that much pressure, because again, as I've been to, uh, I've been to a game in person this year and it does still have the, it still feels when you're there, we've done a good job with the television broadcast, but it still feels when you're there a little bit like an exhibition game and a little bit like even a, a sparsely attended spring game. So I wonder if that helps when you're in that pressure of a moment that you can actually trick yourself. You can't hear the, there's no fans getting anxious around you because you, so you can get kind of caught up. You don't get too caught up in the moment because you can convince yourself, Hey, you know, this is like a spring game or something. And it, maybe it takes a little bit of the pressure off because uh, he, but I have to say he did not feel like he was, uh, he felt like he kind of, that was one of those, every once in a while you get a no hitter where you're like, how in the world, this guy pull, guy pulled it off. This is guy's pulling magic tricks out of his hat. I think the Edward Jackson eight walk no hitter with like 187 pitches is the one I remember the most. But this one, it felt like Giolito had it, and it was just a matter of time until he finished it off. Yeah, in fact, he said after the seventh inning, his quote was, "I, I thought to myself, I've got six outs. We're going to make this happen." I looked at who was coming up, and I was like, "This is very much in the realm of possibilities." And sure enough, that that Pirates lineup as Matthew Puyo of a uh, uh, I think that's Pulio, Pulio of Roto World uh, pointed out on Twitter of the 10 Pirates who took a at bat last night, seven of them were below the Mendoza line and uh, nine of them were below a 230 batting average. So not the um, the powerhouse lineup that you would, uh, it's not surprising that that lineup got no hit. It actually reminded me of, uh, of Eric Milton's famous or infamous no hitter with uh, expanded rosters in September of 1999. He was pitching for the Twins at the time. He no hit a, a uh, Angels lineup that uh, featured uh, Jeff Devanin, Orlando Palmero, Todd Green, Troy Klaus, Steve Decker, Matt Luke, Brett Hemphill, Trent Durrington, and Andy Sheets. How many of those players do you remember, Will? Uh, I, all of them immediately and right off the top of my head. <laughs> I, I remember David Cohn got a little bit of this with his perfect game. I know Vlad was in that lineup, but I think that Expos team was was not particularly great either. But again, you know, I love, by the way, I love the idea. Imagine being one of those hitters, by the way, where you're sitting there and Giolito, realize now that Giolito is looking at you going, oh yeah, this is within the realm of possibility. <laughs> These guys are not going to be a problem. And, and he's right. You know, th- I think it speaks to just how kind of, obscenely bad this Pirates team is at the plate. It's really kind of remarkable. But, you know, Giolito would have got a lot of people out last night. This was also, I take a lot of pride in no-hitters of generally feeling pretty confident when the balls hit 
that, oh, that's an out. Or like, this is going to keep going or this is over. And I really, I, I can't be the only one. I think that the, the, the base hit percentage was incredibly high on that one. When he hit that last bat, I thought, oh, that's down. That's a base hit. The no hitter's over. It was the, of the, according to StatCast, it was the highest expected batting average of any batted ball hit uh, by a Pirates batter last night at 850. So it was definitely looked like a hit, but uh, Adam Engel made the catch. The White Sox won again. And you wrote about this today. The White Sox are probably going to make the playoffs. And, you know, it looks like the AL playoff chase is kind of set, but it's, it's kind of set, but also still kind of fascinating. Yeah, I kind of went off something that, again, uh, when Johnny Carson was here, he wrote about this. I'm here Gallagher to, like, ruin the great thing that he did. But uh, Petriello wrote a really good piece about this at the beginning of the year, talking about the AL middle. Uh, basically, the AL middle. And what, what he argued, correctly, as it turned out, was that there were obviously two teams in each of the three divisions that were clearly ahead of the other three teams in the division, the Rays and the Yankees in the East, the Twins and the Indians in the Central, and the A's and the Astros in the West. And that has played out. Here we are halfway through, roughly halfway through, depending on how many games your team has played, and all of them are above 97.1% to make the playoffs. They're clearly set. And so what he argued was the AL middle was a race almost between every other team in the division for those last two playoff spots. And what we've seen with the White Sox in the last week a team that Petriello was very skeptical of, by the way, um, which is they basically claimed one of those two spots. I think they are, they're actually at 97.7%. They're tied with the Indians right now for second place. Uh, weird things can happen, but for, by all accounts, by, it really looks pretty clear that seven of the eight playoff spots are locked in, which is a little bit of a bummer because one of the funds of this season was like, wow, there's so many teams are making the playoffs. Everyone's going to feel like they're in. So the bad news is seven of the eight spots are claimed. The good news is, is everybody is still alive for that for the eighth spot and like kind of vividly alive. Because you know, one of the things that Petriello wrote in that piece was the idea that like this is a spot that the Red Sox and the Angels are really going to be battling for, and they have the worst two records in the American League. So I kind of went through kind of the race for that uh, for that eighth spot because I do think the White Sox are in now, and it's funny because again. The first place right now, first place in that spot is the Blue Jays. They're the only team at 500 as the time that we uh, at the time that we discuss this, and I think they're the clear favorite. But like literally, the teams right behind them. Here are the four teams directly behind them: the Orioles, Tigers, Royals, and Mariners in order. All of which we just assumed the Orioles. We weren't sure they were going to win double-digit games for crying out loud. Even the Red Sox and Angels are still alive in this. The Red Sox are only five games out of that spot. To me, that is one of the really fun things. Is now that now that we know the White Sox, again, they take a collapse from any of those seven teams to kind of lose their spot. But that A spot, the fact that the Orioles are in it, the fact that the Royals are in it, the fact that the Rangers either might trade everyone or go for it because they're only uh, three games out is really kind of a remarkable thing to watch. And I think one of the fun parts about having the playoffs be the way they are this year. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, it, it is kind of crazy that the, I think that, as you pointed out, that it's, it's the, the Angels and Red Sox that are kind of the, the teams on the outside Looking in, I was very high on the the Blue Jays coming into this season, but that was kind of predicated on um, Vlad being great and Bo Bichette being healthy and great. Vlad's been pretty okay, maybe less so, and Bichette has been great but hurt for like now 10 days. And yet, you know, I think if the playoffs started today, the, the Blue Jays would be in and they'd be playing the A's in the first round and the A's would be kind of scared. Yeah, and you know, and we'll get into this when we talk about the Dodgers. But this is the fun of the playoffs this year. It's the idea that everyone is scared whenever they go in there. But yeah, I mean, the Dodger, the well, I kind of looked at the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays are in the top half of baseball in uh, team OPS and in ERA, which you know, I know those are rough measures. But that's like a good way to finish above 500. <laughs> if you're both of those things, that's a really good way to be there. And I think that's why they're the clear favorite. They've had issues, obviously, Bichette hurt. I still, I'm telling you what, Vlad Guerrero Jr. is going to be 35 someday. And I'm really going to be like, here it comes. Here it's happening. Here comes the explosion. And I know he's only 21, so that's a ridiculous thought. But it really, you always feel like last year you thought it was coming, that this was the year. It still feels like it's going to happen at some point. But, uh, you know, it, it, the thing about the Blue Jays is for this A spot, you, you literally only have to be average and it's possible you can be below average. In fact, if you're in the National League, you are you are in a playoff spot. There are teams that are under 500 that are in playoff spots right now. So the, the bar to clear is not that high. And I think that's what kind of interesting when you look at those teams like the Orioles, like the Tigers, uh, like the Mariners, those teams that obviously did not go into the season thinking they're going to go for a playoff spot. 
but heck, while you're here, right? Like I, I, the Orioles could call up Mount Castle, or I know the Tigers have even like the Tigers have already made some moves, but I don't know, Turkelson, maybe, maybe Kelnick for the Mariners. Like there's no for at this point, you are you can say, okay, they don't need to go for it. They don't need to mortgage the future for this year. And I think that's true. I don't think any of those teams are gonna trade away prospects for a big guy at the at the deadline. However, if you are this close with a month left to go. Hey, a great way to find out something about your phenoms is what, how they'll handle when they're someday in a pennant chase is to actually play them in the middle of a pennant chase because, believe it or not, guys, you are actually in one, which to me is really fun. Yeah, Over in the NL, um, I guess the big surprises are the Giants, who if the seasons have won seven straight as we record this and if the playoffs start today, would be in the eighth spot. And the Marlins, who actually are still – they keep winning games and um, uh, are in second place in the uh, – in the NL East right now and would, would be firmly be in the playoffs right now, not even as, as a wild card team. So um, do you expect, do you think that either of those teams has a chance of maintaining its position? Yeah. The weird, the thing about the Marlins is the thing I kind of liked the Marlins about going to the Marlins this year is I felt like they, because their hitting was so bad last year, they added Dickerson, they added Aguilar, uh, they added VR and like, it felt like, okay, they're trying to bump that up a little bit. Aguilar has been okay. Dickerson is not, and VR has not been either. But it's really that pitching. That's the thing that we were excited about from them. And they do have like a lot of these. It's weird though. Like a lot of their bullpen arms, it's a team that has it, kind of the opposite of the way a lot of baseball is now, right? Like all their young pitchers are start. Their young flamethrowing pitchers are starters. Like you look at like a lot of teams, you've got the more experienced person that's the starter, and then you have the flamethrower of the bullpen, and maybe you can work them up to that. All the relievers are old. <laughs> they're, I mean, they're traded for Blyer, right? And, it, and it's generally kind of working. Whereas they're all of their starters, I think all of their starters are under or 25 or under. That is kind of insane in this way, in this world. But to me, that's the fun of the Marlins, right? Is that like they have, you know, I think they're different than the Tigers and the Royals and the Orioles who are really just like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. Let's see what, what goes. The Marlins were clearly trying to make an effort to be a little better this year. When I did my preview of uh, previous the season, I actually, my, one of my bold predictions was that the Marlins were not going to finish in last. Uh, that's looking pretty good now, but the real reason is looking good is because the Mets and the nationals and the Phillies are having so much trouble. And I think the Marlins are taking advantage of that, but you know, we'll, we'll see this with the Marlins. You'll see this with the Cardinals. Both of them have kind of came out hot after, the little quarantines we'll see if that runs into a wall at some point the cardinals have like a million double headers coming up the marlins still have some games to kind of catch up a little bit uh to me that that's the issue is with all the injuries that are going with pitchers the marlins can hang in now they've got it now but how i hate it seems weird to say are they built for the long haul in a 60 game season but clearly the way they're running uh they're running pretty hot in a way that could i think could cause them a little bit of trouble yeah, I want to point out one thing about the about the the Marlins last night is you you probably saw the the highlight of uh, John Birdie stealing three bases in a row in the, in the bottom of the sixth inning, um, and I I I couldn't help but um, feel for Mets catcher Ali Sanchez. Most people probably weren't aware that this was his first major league start. He's probably only starting this game because Thomas Nito went on the injured list. The Mets' normal backup catcher Sanchez is probably not major league ready. He's like a fringe prospect at this point. He was a big bonus baby like seven years ago. But if you read his scouting report on MLB Pipeline, he's like the Mets' number 28 prospect. And it says, like, can't hit, amazing defensive catcher, your classic, you know, backup catcher profile, right? You know, he, he toils in the minors for six seasons, has fifteen more than 1,500 minor league plate appearances, finally gets his first MLB start. Second inning, comes up with the bases loaded and two outs, strikes out. Fourth inning, Comes up with two outs and runners in the corner, pops out to center field. Sixth inning, John Birdie steals second base. John Birdie steals third base. And then John Birdie, clearly sensing that this is a deer in headlights, pulls off the Little League steal, Little League steal, where he basically takes off as soon as Sanchez lobs the ball back to the pitcher, stumbles on his way home, and yet still scores. Like I felt so bad for Ali Sanchez last night in his first major league start. It reminded me of a story that I don't know if you saw that, that Michael Clare wrote on the site last week about Ron Wright, who debuted for the Mariners in 2003. He played in one major league game. He went 0 for 3 and got it into a double play and a triple play. So he had he one game and made six outs and three at-bats and never appeared in the major leagues again. All I could think of was Ali Sanchez, and I was like, I hope he does not meet the same fate as Ron Wright. 
there's that's there's something very demoralizing about that 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 last steal was actually hard to watch because he did fall down it almost felt as if Bertie like felt guilty about what was happening <laughs> which was kind of amusing it reminded me of, and listen there's hope though because I read that that white that white story and I thought it was good but I always think back to uh, 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 to Mike Myers I remember the uh, not not the uh, not the comedian and not the murderer from the Halloween movies uh, this is a pitcher uh, who's now still hanging around with the Angels organization but uh, started with the Cardinals in 2016 they needed a emergency starter he started on sunday night baseball sunday night baseball against the dodgers in in 2016 so the dodgers were still very or obviously just starting to get really good here he he was an emergency starter he would he didn't not expecting him there was a last minute i think adam wainwright was hurt or someone was hurt last minute emergency starter he throws in on national on on uh on espn baseball tonight pitches one third of an inning gives up nine earned runs and then was sit down and, and it was really looked like this was the only time he was ever going to make it back to the majors. He did eventually get called up three months later, but I always like, so there's hope and he became a perfectly serviceable reliever. So your horrible starts, there's hope for you ultimately. But that that play, I thought is sort of like a little, like part of what the, I mean, the Marlins are fast and they're definitely trying to do this kind of thing. And I think that actually there's like a small edge you can find on the margins in this season of all seasons where like, there's a lot of guys who are being put on the field who players who are not used to playing together, players who probably aren't major league ready, like Ali Sanchez, where you could take advantage in like little ways of your competition if you're aggressive and sort of like force them to make plays. And it's sort of it's it's it makes them the, the Marlins feel a little more a little more spunky when they're they're trying to to uh, to pull pull off stuff like that. But the thing about the Marlins, right? And we talked about them, another surprise team is the Giants, and these are two teams that no one expected to make the playoffs um, who could end up as the eight seed, in which case they would have to face the L.A. Dodgers. The L.A. Dodgers, if you have not been paying attention, are absolutely a juggernaut. They have a, they are a, they are in a 115-win pace over a 162-game season. They have a plus 77 run differential. No one else in baseball is better than plus 39, so basically like twice as good as any other team. And yet, there still has to be a little bit of uneasiness going into the playoffs for them this year, even if they're going to be playing a team like the Giants or the Marlins in the first round. Am I right? Yeah, this was the thing with the playoff expansion. It was great news for teams like the Blue Jays or like the White Sox or even like the Indians. It was definitely bad news for the stud teams. <laughs> That's the problem is, you know, the Dodgers the Dodgers did not need any help getting in the postseason this year. They were going to be in the postseason really no matter what happened. All you can do is uh, – all you want to see for them is – all they would want out of a season like this is to give – like maybe you give us an advantage in the playoffs because we're so good. The opposite of that has happened. And listen, the Dodgers are good, are obviously a, a terrific team. They have lost two out of three at one point this season. They have two, and at some point, they will lose two out of three to a team that is not even good enough to make the playoffs this year. These things happen even in 60-game seasons. So get them in a three game in a three game playoff series as we're going to see at the end of this year. I mean the the Giants are one of those teams. The Mets are one of those teams. Imagine imagine being the Dodgers having this incredible team and having to face Degrom in one of the three games. They like all, all of a sudden being down one zero against a team that in a regular season you would be like thirty five games better than <laughs> maybe even more is truly kind of remarkable. And again. It leads to my general attitude about this season, which is I'm having so much fun. And it's been a relief and a balm for me in so many ways to have these games going. And I think the champion, if you end up with the, champ, the championship this year and win the World Series, not only does it not count, I think you can make a good argument. It is even more impressive that somehow you pulled it all together and pulled this off. However, yeah, they, they, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, Billy Bean had a great a great quote about this in a piece that uh, Mike Lupica did today. Um when asked about sort of the randomness of the playoffs, you know, Billy Bean is sort of famous for his quote Moneyball of my, my stuff doesn't work in the playoffs. And Bean said, it's going to be even more random this time. It just is. Listen, I'm not talking out of school here by saying that the Dodgers have a great team. They had a great team on paper coming in and now they're showing it on the field, but look at what could happen to them in the first round. Say they have to go up against a team like the giants with the rivalry and all that. The nightmare scenario for them was what the, was they run into a hot Johnny Cueto and a hot Kevin Gosman in the first two games. It's going to be everybody's nightmare scenario. <laughs> and that's and to me that's fun, right? Like I, I I don't know. Again, 
it and we'll see what happens, what sticks this year and what it uh, doesn't stick next year from from this year. Uh, but certainly in an ordinary season, it would seem to me like, wow, what a you they have totally cheapened what the Dodgers did in the regular season. The Dodgers are playing 60 games this year. <laughs> the Dodgers are playing. They've been very good during those 60 games, but it's still 60 games. Like it's hard to say, wow, you've really devalued this completely insane regular season that we're having right now. To me, if there's ever a year to have this kind of playoffs and to have that kind of weirdness, I agree that it is unfortunate that the Dodgers have put together what seems to be a historically great team, and they're, and they're, and it's happening during a season where there's only 60 games in this playoff structure. Allow, forgive me, but I the, I hope the Dodgers will step in line in the big queue of, wow, unfortunate things about 2020 thing that sort of happened. It's, I'm, so I'm, I'm sorry for the Dodgers, but I'm more grateful that there is baseball. And so uh, I understand that. I'm This is, to me, a, a good argument against doing a playoff thing like this in a 162-game season because I do think not only would it devalue the regular season, I think it would really change the incentive structure for a lot of teams to on just – simply how good to get in the regular season. I think the Dodgers would not really be incentivized to have this kind of juggernaut if if uh, if there were this many playoff teams on a regular basis. But in this year, hey man, uh, as, as, as Petriello says all the time, let's get weird. <laughs> and it is a weird year and it is unfortunate for the Dodgers in this situation. But you know what? There's a whole bunch of things that are really unfortunate for a lot of people this year. So uh, as I said, step in line, Don. Well said. All right, now we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with a segment we like to call the Three Batter Minimum. Now we're going to go with a segment we like to call the Three Batter Minimum, in which we hit three topics from around the league. Let's go with batter number one, which uh, for this week is the unofficial all-star ballot that we did here at MLB.com. We asked asked more than 60 editors, writers, reporters, etc., to fill out an all-star ballot because we're basically at the halfway point of the season and um, we picked a team and um, I guess I can, I'll run through the team quickly and then you can sort of point out anything that you really stood out to you as a surprise. So um, I'll just go through the starters because we don't want to get too deep into the rankings here. Um, the catchers, uh, the catchers, I'll go to the American League first in the NL. Um, American League catcher, Pedro Severino of the Orioles, first base, Luke Boyd of the Yankees, second base, Brennan Lowe of the Rays, Third base, Anthony Rendon of the Angels. Shortstop, Tim Anderson of the White Sox. The outfielders were Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, and Kyle Lewis. The DH, of course, was Nelson Cruz. Starting pitcher was Shane Bieber. And the reliever was Liam Hendricks of the A's. Uh, in the NL, we had JT Real of the Phillies. Freddie Freeman of the Braves at first base. At second base, we had Donovan Solano, which I think was the big who maybe uh, would not have seen that one coming. The Giants uh, standout second baseman this year. Donnie Barrels, as they call him. At uh, third base, Manny Machado of the Padres. Uh, shortstop, of course, Fernando Tatis Jr., the breakout star of uh, 2020. Outfield is Mookie Betts, Bryce Harper, and Mike Yastrzemski. Um, designated hitter, Jesse Winker of the Reds. Uh, starting pitcher, Jacob Rahm of the Mets. And rel- the quote-unquote starting reliever, uh, Josh Hader of the Brewers. Um, of those results, did anything really stand out to you? Yeah, one of the fun things about this, I, I like to sometimes go back and look at old all-star rosters, which of course go, are going off a lot more evidence than we are, and look and see like, wow, that's amazing that that person was a, was an all-star at that particular moment. But in the moment, it makes sense, right? And so for me, I want to make sure we save this and look back at this in like three years and be like, hmm, Donovan Solano. Wow, that was, what a year 2020 was. That was really kind of a remarkable thing. Uh, but, you know, I, to me, this is such a moving target at every single time you, you really end up picking, picking these. I don't, I've, I voted on this, but it's been, you know, it's been a few days and already things have changed dramatically. <laughs> like uh, since, since this Voight was the starter and then Jose Abreu hit three homers, but then Voight still leads an OPS on the hall. And there are a lot of Orioles, for example. That's unusual. I don't think anyone would have seen that come in this year but to me that that is the fun of this is trying to do uh, this is why even like even when they send out the all-star ballots every year when, and they make they said when they when they put the voting available on the site every year every single time that happens in a normal season i'm like wow this is like really early is it time already to start thinking about all-stars and it is farther along in the season than we are right now when that happens so it is uh, to kind of capture this particular moment is kind of fun. the backup reliever here for example is nick anderson who's already hurt and <laughs> we don't know when he's going to be going again so uh it, it, it's such an unusual uh weird kind of 
the year that uh, it's fun. It feels like a snapshot of someone in the middle of a race, but you're catching them like uh, when they're in mid stride or maybe they look a little awkward or their faces a little off. The, all these guys are good, but it's hard to look at them and be like, ah, yes, the winker ascension season, as we all predicted. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to look at that and feel like it feels like you're capturing a moment in time, even more than you usually are when you pick an all-star. For sure. I, I mean, it, it was mostly like, I was actually surprised how many established stars were on there, but of course, yes. Pedro Severino, um, uh, stand out. Uh, Solano stand out. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised to see Kyle Lewis make the team for make the team. Um, yeah, I, I, gave, I gave him a call this morning. He was very excited. He was very excited. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw his celebration on Twitter. It was really something. Cool. <laughs> uh, all right. Now we're going to move on to uh, topic number two, uh, the trade deadline. It's next Monday, August 31st at uh, 4 PM Eastern time. And it's probably not going to be a typical um, trade deadline with so many teams still in the race, but um, there will be trades. You know, what do you want to see happen? What do you think will happen? Yeah, I, I, I think it was a it was a good indicator of what this trade is going to be like, of just how excited we were by the Brandon Workman trade. <laughs> like we were, we was really like we were really like it's a trade. Oh my gosh, and we understand why both teams did it. And like it was, it was really like to me that's kind of what. Uh, uh, we're looking at this trade line. It's going to be a lot of scraps. And it, for the record, like uh, some some of the trade lines have felt a little like scraps, where they've turned out to be bigger things. So, uh, you remember a couple of years ago, you know, the big trade was the Pirates uh, was the Chris Archer Pirates race trade, which turned, has turned out to be a total disaster. This feels like a year where no one is going to put themselves in the position of making a disaster trade. <laughs> and I, I I know there's a lot of bad trades going on. We talk about the the uh, the 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 Dansby Swanson trade for Shelby Miller. And again, the, that Archer trade, which again, I, I'm proud to say I was on MLB network at the time that trade happened and said it was a bad trade. And so, and they're like, what the pirates are hot. Here comes Archer. So like, I, you know, I, I feel I've, I, I will, so very rarely am I right about these things. So, uh, but there's, it doesn't feel like all the trades, we may see some names moved here or there and I, we can discuss some of the names going to be going, but even if there's like a bigger name, it doesn't feel like anyone for any reason would go all in at or all out really uh, at this year. I think that's what this deadline's missing is a team like the pirates. Who's just gotten hot in the last week and a half and feels like, I don't know. We're like a couple games behind the Cubs. Maybe we can make a run here. I'm all in. Let's do it. I just don't think there will be any teams doing that this year, frankly, wisely. Yeah. The, I mean, the one name that keeps being banged about is like, Oh, this guy's definitely going to get traded is Trevor Rosenthal reliever for the for the Royals. He's pitching well for the first time in years. He's not on a big contract, which will make him appealing because every team can always use bullpen help. Um, and the Royals are probably not going to make the playoffs. So, like, they kind of checked all the boxes of, like, why he would be um, a desirable reliever. But then again, like, the, the Royals are kind of an atypical franchise. A colleague of mine pointed this out. It's like, Dave Moore, their GM, kind of just, like, if he likes someone, like, he wants them on the team, like, regardless of, like, where the team's going. He just sort of operates kind of on a different plane. And, like, to a certain extent, like, oh, yes, obviously, they'll trade Trevor Rosenthal. You know, he's got a 1-4-6 ERA and 17 strikeouts and 12 innings. Like, duh. But, like, the way that the Royals kind of generally operate, like, I'm not actually certain uh, he will get traded. Yeah, I'm not either. And for the, he does look good. Like he, he was, uh, he looks good in a way that even, frankly, I watched him uh, beat the Cardinals on Tuesday night. He looks better than he did during his Cardinals peak. Like he really looks fully, fully healthy. And I know how bad he was for the Nationals last year. That it's hard. It's been so long since he's been so good. He looks terrific. But also, again, I'm sorry, the Royals are kind of in the race. <laughs> like, I keep going back to that, too. <laughs> but, like, the Royals are kind of in the race. And it's funny, I keep back thinking of that Orioles-Blyer trade that happened earlier this year, right? Where, like, any Orioles fan at the time that was like, oh, come like, you, how can you trade him, man? He's our best reliever, and we're still in this. Like, we were, like, a week and a half into the year, but it, it almost felt, like, churlish and weird for an Orioles fan to, who, again, they've all accepted this is, like, three or four years down the line. It almost feels weird to be like, oh, come on, how can you do this? Like, no, this is exactly what this year are supposed to be right it's trading away trading away the assets we have to build to something later we are still in the long sort of process except now i don't know the orioles are a half game out of the eighth spot and maybe could use a pitcher like that we'll see what happens if the marlins makes the playoffs and has a big moment and the orioles miss the game by one or two which is to say that like 
the idea never mind the idea of like someone like rosenthal or what the royals culture is like i honestly don't know what a buyer and a seller is right now <laughs> like and from and like the like the pirates to me look like the only team in all of baseball that really should be like yep Everything must go. If you want any of this, I don't know why you would. Uh, you should have heard what Lucas Giolito said about us. Uh, but but I don't know why you would want any of this stuff. But if you do, please take it. I don't know why any other team would be like that, frankly, including the Red Sox and the Angels, who are, who are the second and third worst teams ahead of the Pirates, but are still ostensibly one week away from being right back in the race. And so I, I know like I, some people talk about Dylan Bundy, that would someone to be traded. And I understand that again in a typical year. Absolutely. But I don't know. He's really signed, brought in a lot of stuff for that team to suddenly be like, when you're not like, not, like you're not mathematically eliminated. I think the angels last time I saw are like, they basically have the same playoff odds as teams that are like two or three games ahead of them. that are still hanging around. Like you never know. It's that kind of year. I can't tell who the buyers and sellers are in the first place, let alone how like deals would match up. Yeah. I think that's, a, that's sort of what's kind of, you know, kind of, messed with the, the the trade deadline a little bit is the teams you would have expected to sell the giants the orioles the marlins are kind of in the mix and like so there's like no incentive especially since like you know the returns on some of these trades aren't aren't that great the one kind of difference maker i could see moving i think would make a lot of sense um is trevor rosenthal's former cardinals teammate uh lance lynn who has developed in the kind of an ace for the rangers in the last year and a half and he has one more year left on his contract after this one so he wouldn't be just like basically you'd be getting it for one more year and it's a very reasonable contract it's like three years 30 million so and also the and also the rangers although they were expected to contend um they're you know they're 11 and 18 and have a minus 52 run differential which um is the worst in the american league so you could see them saying like you know you actually probably could get like a pretty decent prospect back or two back you know last year the you know a, a good comp would be last year the mets trade for marcus stroman from the Blue Jays, and they gave him two pretty good pitching prospects. Um, Anthony Kay, who's already been pitching in the Blue Jays rotation, and, and Simeon Woods Richardson, who's a hard thrower, who's a, a year or two away. But like, I think that would be like a reasonable comp. So like, if you're the Rangers, you can get like two like legitimate pitching prospects for Lance Lynn. You kind of have to think about it. That, that's kind of the one name that I think could be could. You know, he's not like a household name. He's not like a, a, a star, but he's the one potential um, you know big name starting pitcher I could see see moving and getting and getting a decent return and he's terrific and it's also like he's apparently like beloved in the clubhouse they like he's an unusual even in st louis he was a quirky personality in a way that tends to work well in baseball so i you can see it but again like ju- just how much will they get right like that would lance land one of the i mean the way he's pitching forget just this year he was terrific last year too I mean, you can you can make a case that Lance Lynn, the way he's going right now, is one of the ten best starting pitchers in baseball. Maybe, right? I think you could maybe make that argument. Do you are you still going to get a? Would you get a top one hundred? Would you give a top one hundred prospect for Lance Lynn right now? Um, if I were the Yankees, I might. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of crazy because he was on their team two years yeah, ago, right. like and like nobody like noticed. Yeah, like nobody noticed. Mike and I talking about the podcast. The Yankees, he had like you know he he pitched in relief for them and had like you know thirty strikeouts and two walks in like twenty five innings. It was like and then he, you know it was like he had some crazy run. Um, I think you know a team like the Yankees that really could use a reliable starting pitcher. Um, I could see it. The one the one other name I'll mention um, before we move on to our next topic that's gotten a little buzz who I could also maybe see moving uh, is Josh Hader um, because right now um, the, the Brewers are kind of, kind of stuck in a little bit of a rut. He's under team control for three more years. You always, the, 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 the Brewers are very much like an arbitrage team. They're always trying to kind of like buy low, sell high, that kind of thing. And with relievers, they're so fickle. You always kind of want to sell, tr- sell them before, before it starts to go downhill. And they also have developed a couple of good relievers, one of whom I'll talk about more in a minute. Um, um Devin Williams but I could see it they're they're the kind of team that's very aggressive in trading and they could still compete this year if they traded him because of the bullpen depth behind him and because he's under control for three more years you could get something like legitimate for him 
Yeah, it's just that feels that it, it, it's funny though because it feels like all kind of moves you're making this year and looking toward the future are being made a little bit in the dark. <laughs> like the number of moving parts that have to come together to trade someone like Hater, who again is still throwing a no hitter this year. <laughs> he's still in the midst of a no hitter. Uh, like he's been so terrific this to year. Clear, to be clear for those listening, he's pitched nine in the third innings this year and is not allowed a hit. So yeah, and, they, and to be fair, they've all been pirates. So it doesn't it doesn't matter every single uh, apparently the pirate you just look at the pirates if you're like oh my no hitter's fine I can't get over that quote uh, but anyway so uh, for me hater is uh, he's that's such a big trade and it's such a big trade in that like you know sure he's under team control for a long time but why does hater get in arbitration in this environment like who like there's so many like kind of weird angles and weird we just don't know what 2021 is going to look like let alone knowing what's going on this year it just feels like that's a, a player that big and that good and that central to what the brewers are doing and i understand trading a, a reliever a year or two early but they didn't do it last year <laughs> and that, that, that was a time where they, they could have thought about that they were just kind of hanging around last year they didn't end up making the playoffs but that was after that weird run after yellish got hurt like theoretically that was someone People, he was talking about a last trade deadline, and they didn't do it then. It feels like a year or less control with so many kind of weird things going on. It's hard to imagine everything landing. And also, they're a game and a half out of the second place, by the way. Like, they're still kind of hanging around. Uh, I can, and, and Yelich hasn't even gotten going yet. I can, I, if I were the Brewers, I'd be real, real careful about doing that. All right, for topic number three of the three better minimum, um, we're talking about double headers. Um, you wrote a piece about this last week. Um, the seven inning double headers that have been implemented for the 2020 season. What is your your take on them? Because they've definitely been a divisive topic in uh in the baseball Twitter sphere. Yeah, this to me is the one uh, you could go either way with some of the things that they're they're doing in the uh, uh that they're happening in 2020. There's a big debate whether they're going to happen 2021 or not. The expanded playoffs to me, I would be surprised to see that uh, next year. But the extra innings rule. I think people have decided they like that a little bit more than they thought they were going to. And I understand why, and I kind of feel the same way. The extra innings, the the, the doubleheader thing is different. And it's weird because all the doubleheaders have been discussed kind of in the context of we got to fit in many in these many of these games as you can. And we have to, and we have to shorten and, get, and keep these, keep these players uh, uh, more he- healthier. And I get that. And I understand that to me, the question is the great thing about a seven inning doubleheader is it changes up it really, in a way, seven innings baseball almost feels more attuned to the way that baseball is played now than a nine inning game. And I'd say that in that, like, already, I find it incredibly strange, by the way, they have not lowered the number of innings a pitcher has to pitch in a seven inning game to get a win. I know nobody cares about wins, but that feels like an adjustment you should make because I feel like a lot of times, like, for crying out loud, when you get to, like, the fourth inning, you are more than halfway there. Who cares if this person gets a win or not? And maybe we shouldn't care, but, like, pitchers tend to care. And I've already noticed several times in doubleheaders, managers clearly pushing them into that fifth inning when they have enough relievers to get themselves the rest of the way like they would in the seventh or eighth for me that's the fun though it keys up the urgency of every game in the third inning uh in the third inning generally speaking third inning is the okay now it's time for now's the bathroom break time now's the i can miss a couple pitches here in in this in a seventh inning game the third inning is a pivot inning like it's like the fifth in a regular game and i think it increases the level of urgency uh that you would ordinarily see I like that. I like that. I also think that, you know, there, there's, I read, I wrote about this in the piece that like in Jeff Passon's book, the arm, one of the things he discusses is the idea that a lot of people think that that way to keep pitchers healthy, healthier is not so much to worry about pitching them on a regular basis or two or like too many days in a row, as much as it is don't overdo it and don't make them throw more pitches than they should. This to me in a world of openers and in, 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 a, in a world of, of, of a lot of pitching changes, that's perfect for a seven inning game. And just from a fan's aspect, it is nice to know that like like for for a three fifteen game, I'm about to go to a doubleheader. I'm actually gonna be at the Yankees Braves doubleheader today. And to know that like not only are you getting two games for the price of one, you're like they're both like generally speaking, 
you've I watched a, that first Cardinals White Sox doubleheader after the Cardinals quarantine ended was over in like four hours and twenty minutes. <laughs> now I know that those were two unusually quick games, but it's remarkable, right? In this day and age, to have to to have the game stacked up quickly with one another. I've been surprised. A lot of people have been surprised by how much they like the runner on second base. I have been surprised by how much. The, the, the there's something less daunting about a doubleheader in seven innings and it feels more breezy and even a little bit more fun. I find myself watching a regular inning, nine inning game being like, boy, this game's going to go on forever. You know, I've been watching nine inning games my entire life. It's really kind of a remarkable thing. I know they probably wouldn't have, would never have done this, but I think there's something about the psychology of it that's confusing. If I turn on a game and if you don't realize it, I almost think they should have started, started game from the third inning. So like if you turn oh, on the yeah. game in the middle, yeah. you know, like, when it's ending, like right now, if you turn a game in the fifth inning, you don't realize it's a double header. You might like be like caught by caught, caught off guard. And I think players sometimes might get caught off guard where they forget that it's a seven inning game. Whereas at least if you looked up and you're like, Oh, we're already in the third inning. You'd be like, okay, we know we're playing that. You, you, like you're, it's ingrained in your head. You're playing to the ninth inning. So um, that's just, that's a terrific idea, by the way. I had not even thought about that, but that's a really good idea. I feel like, but that I have to say, if you want something that would very much confuse and upset older broadcasters <laughs> that's it a lot of analysts would be like why apparently it's the third inning and we just got here it feels like something that would upset your more cantankerous older former ballplayer broadcasters all right now we're gonna move on to my favorite seg- segment of the show which we call let's discover a guy which is where both of us will break down a player one fascinating player that there's a good chance you have never heard of and will as our guest i will allow you to go first so the Somerset Patriots, little shout out to Jersey, love to New Jersey. The Somerset Patriots, who I have actually seen uh, play before, were kind of having a little bit of an issue because, again, like a lot of minor league teams, you can have no fans. There's, there's, it's a hard thing to figure anything out. So they set up this series earlier this year with it, uh, with all like local players and people just hanging around looking for something to do. They created a team called the New Jersey Blasters. And they just put them together for a 13-game series to let just kind of let them play in June. An inter, like an inter-squad game? They just like played each other? They, yeah, they had 13 games. It was between the Somerset Patriots and the New Jersey Blasters. They like oh, I see you guys. They put, yeah. they put together like, got it. Yeah, like a 13-game series between them. One of those players in the New Jersey Blasters was a man named Brandon Liebrandt. If that Liebrandt name sounds familiar to you, yes, it is Charlie Liebrandt's son. Charlie Liebrandt apparently had his son older and later in life because his son is now, uh, his son Brandon Liebrandt playing in this independent league, just hanging around Jersey, trying to find something to do, came in for the New Jersey Blasters and absolutely dominated the league. Absolutely completely dominated the league uh he had three starts gave uh, had 15 15 strikeouts gave up one run was just absolutely dominant so the marlins called him the marlins called him uh, and this is again this is not like going from uh you know it's one thing to go to like the satellite team and pick somebody up and eventually he did get a satellite he's actually now back on the satellite team but the idea that like Charlie Liebrand's son was just hanging out in New Jersey and was like, hey, oh, wow, good. This is something we can do uh, to, to keep the Somerset Patriots solvent. And it turns out he ended up getting called up and making his major league debut this week and pitched really well, pitched four scoreless innings against the Nationals. He's been sent down to the alternate site, a phrase I still have not gotten used to and still feels like Ozzie Smith going to the place in The Simpsons. I still don't like the alternate site. Feels like he's in a parallel universe and fighting like several Spider-Mans. But uh, Lieber has been pushed to the alternate side, but he'll be back up. So Brandon Lieber, Charlie Lieber's son, uh, hanging, happened to be hanging around Jersey at the right time in the middle of a pandemic and got himself in the major leagues because of it. A couple of things I'll learn about Brandon Lieber. He's not a complete nobody. He was a sixth round pick of the Phillies in 2014 out of Florida State. So he has some pedigree. What I also love about Brandon Lieber is that even in this age of sort of flamethrowers and, you know, velocity is king, he basically pitches just like his dad, who our younger listeners may not remember, who was a, a, what they would call a, a, a thumbing lefty or a soft-tossing lefty um, in the 80s for the Royals and then and then Braves. Um, Brent Liebrand throwing a fastball around 88, 88, 88 89 miles an hour. Um, I'm sure his father never threw it that hard, but that by, by 2020 standards, uh, 88 miles an hour for your 14 fastball is um, on the low end of the uh, low end of the spectrum. In fact, I think um, my favorite Charlie, not favorite, the thing I remember Charlie Lieber most for, and I don't know what your your Charlie Lieber memory is, well, my memory of Charlie Lieber is actually sort of like he gave up the walk-off home run to Kirby Puckett in game six of the 91 World Series for the Braves, which if the Braves had won, they would have won the World Series. But then, of course, they lost game six and then lost game seven, the famous Jack Morris, um, John Smoltz pitching duel. And then in 1992, in game six against the 
Blue Jays, he gave up the go-ahead double to Dave Winfield in Game 6 that led to the Blue Jays winning the, the World Series. But Jared Lebrun did win a ring with the 85 uh, Royals, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, you're talking to a Cardinals fan. That is my Charlie Lee Brand memory. He was <laughs> terrific, actually, in that series. Uh, he actually he pitched really well in both games that he started. He, he actually, uh, they split the games to get a loss in one, but he was terrific in that series. So, yeah, I remember Charlie Lee Brand very well. All right, well, the, uh, the, the, my, uh, my guy to discuss this week is Brewers reliever uh, Devin Williams. Um, Devin Williams was a, was a second-round pick in 2000. Um, 13 and never really nothing really out of a high school in Missouri never really panned out he had Tommy John surgery in March of 2017 he had a 582 ERA in high class A in 2018 this is a guy that looked like it was just you know second round pick just didn't work out and then last year something started to click in the minors and lo and behold now he is one of these like ridiculous relievers that has come out of nowhere that is like materialized out of thin air. He has a 52% strikeout rate. Um, he's in the 100th percentile for whiff rate and for expected batting average, according to StatCast, which basically means he's making people swing and miss. And when they do make contact, they are not hitting it um, uh, very hard. And it seems to be entirely because of his changeup. He's gone really heavy on his changeup this year. He throws the, his fastball at 96. But what he's done is he's, he's now throwing the changeup a lot more. It's almost 50-50 forcing fastball and changeup. But he somehow figured out a way to take almost two miles an hour off of his changeup. So now the gap between his – even last year in his, his cup of coffee was pretty good, a 40% strikeout rate. But last year his changeup was 85.9 miles an hour. This year it's 84.1, so almost two miles an hour. And suddenly people cannot hit it. Even the pitching ninja himself on Twitter said this is arguably the best changeup in baseball. Um, Williams was asked about how he – about slowing down his changeup more. He said it was really trial and error. Throughout quarantine, I was throwing live at bats with a couple of pro guys, a couple of college guys back home. The feedback they were giving, giving me helped a lot. I know if I throw it 88, it's going to have the it's it's not going to have the depth that it has when I throw it 85. It was just trial and error and seeing what works, what kind of swings I would get, and just letting that play off of that ball fastball. I think that difference between the two is a lot bigger now. It is, and he is one of the reasons why I think the Brewers might potentially consider. Um, trading Josh Hader, although we already discussed the merits of that, so I will not belabor that point any further. But seriously, Devin Williams, if you get a chance to watch him, pay attention. That it is a the, the changeup is a thing of beauty. That it just sort of like hovers. It's like a Bugs Bunny changeup, as they say. It just sort of hovers about four feet from home plate and then drops about eight inches. And it's really um, it's really a fantastic pitch, and uh, he is fun to watch. And now we're going to close with our. Purpose pitches, a little rant to send you on your way. Will, um, what do you got for us? Um, I want to credit, by the way, Devin Williams for doing what we all said we were going to do in quarantine in the early days of quarantine, which is like discover some new talent or like write a novel or something. He found a change up. Like he did that thing that we all said we were going to do. So good for you, uh, Devin Williams. Uh, speaking of this particular moment in uh, world history, uh, to me, I nothing really tickles me more than uh, the changes that we've made when it comes to managerial and umpire fights. <laughs> there is one of my absolute favorite things to watch is not only, I, obviously everyone's wearing masks and, th and, and thank goodness for that. And I think that, uh, and I, I'm glad they've got the protocol on that. It is very fun. It's something amazing about watching, like first off, the idea of really like a manager barking at an umpire. It's you're just like a middle-aged man that's like really, really furious at another middle-aged man about something that they're going to forget about in like an hour. <laughs> like there's something about like irrational and uh, and over the top about a managerial umpire fight anyway, which to me is like kind of glorious but when you add in the masks so not only can you not see them yelling at each other they can't see each other yelling at each other and because they're trying to be very conscious they are keeping they keep pulling their masks up and making sure while they're screaming as one tends to do when you scream your mask will move a little bit they keep trying to pull the masks up and cover their masks and there's just something almost three stooges about it about watching like a manager who's so mad but is also trying to keep his mask on and covered and this is my and this is a thumbs down by the way for joe madden who had this situation on tuesday night who 
apparently just skipped the protocol altogether and forgot about his mask he was so mad and so a uh, credit because uh, he he was yelling at actually two separate umpires without his mask on at all so uh, down to you joe man remember the protocols and more to the point uh it is funny to watch managers put masks over their face uh before they go out and yell at an umpire all right thank you will and uh my uh, my purpose pitch will uh it's sort of a bit it's actually a bit of a, a sort of a, a self-flagellation about some sometimes i've, I've counted I've counted, counted some pitching prospects out um, before I before I should have. In fact, this actually calls back to two of the players we've talked about on this on this podcast. Lessons uh, one one A and one B are Lucas Giolito and Devin Williams. People, myself included, do not count out pitching prospects until they have really failed, like failed multiple times as a starter and then failed as a reliever. And then after all that, if maybe they're actually like injured and we know they really can't throw anymore, then maybe we should count them out. Until that happens believe two years ago on this podcast mike and i would mock mock maybe not mock we were very hard on lucas giolito saying oh he's never going to make it you know his fastball doesn't have enough spin rate he's he's lost his velocity it's just this guy was once a big prediction prospect this guy's done last year he was an all-star last night he threw a no hitter um we are so much smarter now about training and pitch development Pitchers are capable of finding new pitches and reinventing themselves. Even Giolito, he says that in, when he had Tommy John surgery, it helped him with his with his find a changeup. And then he went and went back. He changed his mechanics back to the way he threw in high school, and suddenly, voila, he was a new pitcher. So this is a, a bit of a you know I'm going to remind myself to be humble, and I want to uh, to remind the baseball world at large to be a bit more humble, which is um, you know give these pitchers a chance. Um, sometimes it takes a while. Player development is not linear. There are bumps along the way. And it's really cool when at the end of it, you get guys like Giolito and Devin Williams, who many, many years after they are drafted, after a lot of hype and maybe getting forgotten about a little bit, they come back and show you um, that they can make good on the potential that they had when they when they were drafted. And then I will leave you with one cool fact, because this is something that we were discussing in our internal Slack last night about Lucas Giolito. Um, Lucas Giolito, in fact, in 2018, had the highest ERA in Major League Baseball amongst qualifiers. Um, he had a 6.13 ERA, and he actually allowed the most earned runs as well, 118. And we thought, this has to be the first time that someone has led the, led the league, had the worst, the highest ERA in baseball and come back to throw a no-hitter afterwards. In fact, it is not. In fact, it is the fourth time that this has happened, which kind of blew my mind. According to the Elias Sports Bureau, the previous pitchers to manage that sort of transformation were Edison Volquez, who had the highest ERA in 2013, no-hitter in 2017. Dennis Martinez, who had the highest no-hitter, uh, the highest ERA in 1985 and threw a perfect game in 1991. And Rick Wise, who had the highest ERA in 1968 and threw a no-hitter in 1971. Of course, Giolito's 6.13 ERA is also the highest by a pitcher in a qualified. He it is the highest ERA by a pitcher in a qualified season who then went on to throw a no-hitter in a future year. I guess to qualify for the ERA title, you have to be reasonably good that they keep putting out there. So maybe there's a little bit of a selection bias there. I was so kind of shocked to find out that he was the fourth pitcher to have the highest tier rate and then subsequently throw no hitter. Well, buy stock and whoever is terrible at the end of this year. Get very excited. I, that someone I, I'm, I'm waiting for, I guarantee you at some point, if Scott Boris represents that person, he will make that, he will use that stat for you. <laughs> on some large binder in an arbitration hearing. There is no question that's happening. Will, well, thank you very much for uh, filling in for Mike on uh, on this week's podcast. That is our show, our Ballpark Dimensions, Ballpark Dimensions episode for this week, and we will be back next week.